And whenever I hear that uh, great hymn, I can't help but think of the story of the missionary in China um, who was there during the World War II era and was um, encouraged to leave the country while the Japanese were um, attacking that portion of the world. And the missionary said, no, I'll I'll send my family home, um, but I need to stay here with with my people. And as a result of his uh, courageous stay, he was uh, captured by the uh, Japanese and placed in in an internment camp uh, there in China uh, for a considerable length of time. He wore out the clothes that he was wearing, and uh, they took some... um, curtains down off of a building and made them into his clothes. So he was basically wearing drapes uh, when he would actually die of an aneurysm. And uh, there at his, at his funeral, he, um, that song was sung. And uh, his name to the group there in the internment camp was Uncle, Uncle Eric. And uh, his last name was Little. And after, after the funeral, um, it, it came out, one of the people there knew of Eric Little's past, that he was the uh, fastest man on planet earth in 1924 winning the gold medal in the olympics and yet his uh, greatest accomplishment was serving the lord in china as a missionary and some of the folks there that he worked with had no idea that he was a gold medalist Uh, if that was you and i who won a gold medal i'd be wearing it every day i'd be telling you about the race i won and i would brag about it forever Uh, and yet he had the ability to not promote himself uh, there in that mission field and instead promoted the Lord. So I, I love that song, Thank You, Be Still, and I uh, Know the Lord, just a, a beautiful song. But I always think of Eric Little. Well, anyway, good to have you this morning. We have a young gentleman, a Marine. Uh, we are thrilled to have you here. Uh, he was at the Clarinet, um, whatever, conference <laughs> here at, at, in Westminster at the Promenade, and uh, stayed here to be with us on the Lord's Day. Thank you. That's an honor to have you. Thank you for your service to our country. Uh, if you're visiting, welcome. We are thrilled to have you here on the Lord's Day. Uh, we do have a number of our folks out with the youth mission trip. They did arrive safely in uh, Elko and then I hope Reno, Nevada. So I pray for the youth as they minister there on their trip. A good number of them, our youth pastors there, and our former youth pastor, Nathan Stedman, and their wives are also with the teams. So they're in really good hands. But we'll want to pray for them in just a moment. And then to have the hedges with us. Uh, just amazing to see you take up that whole row there. I, I can't imagine X number of weeks you've been on the road. You must be absolutely exhausted, uh, numb. Um, and wherever home is, glad to get home in some time. And uh, it, it's mixed feelings. You're, you know, to have your family all together is such a rare thing for so many of us. But to have all the family together. But uh, the, the future son-in-law, can you imagine... Uh, marrying into this family um, with all of these women, six women and mom, are you kidding? <laughs> and you had to pass all of those tests. So let me ask the girls, are, you in all, are all of you in approval of this union? Could I see the hands? <laughs> I'm seeing a little shaky hands. You have a little more work, sir, to do. <laughs> but great to have you with us. What a delight. And um, we are, as Rod said, we have a Bible in our language and we we can read it and we should and what a blessing but there are people groups around the world uh, that still do not have a a bible in their language and so the hedges are trying to solve some of those problems by translating uh, the word of god into those into those works so wow what what an amazing story Uh, we will pray but if you have your bibles please turn to matthew chapter six and i'd like to just read the passage before us and then i will pray um 
Obviously, uh, while we were going on our trip, we had a wonderful time with our family in upstate New York and uh, northern part of Pennsylvania. Uh, two of our three sons were able to rendezvous at my parents' farm. We had a, a great time. I can share maybe more later. Uh, but while we were gone, it was uh, difficult to hear the news that our, our friend and our brother, Dwayne Richards, uh, went home to be with the Lord. Uh, that was extremely difficult to hear. You know, and this morning, the reality of coming through those front doors where nearly every Sunday he would greet me, and then after the service, he's the first one to greet me with, a, a, he always has a, a breath mint, so I don't kill people with dragon breath, and then he has a bottle of water there, and then uh, Dwayne and I, we have a very special friendship, and obviously at least in our family, so uh, this is a, a huge loss. Uh, the funeral will be here at the church next, next Saturday at 1030. We'll have a reception afterwards, and then uh, there will be a committal service down at, at Crown Hill uh, later that afternoon at 2.30. We'll share more about that, but um, it's a big loss. Uh, he had many, many, many friends in this church, and uh, we're going to miss Dwayne, and uh, we'll need to pray for his family as well. Okay, uh, let me begin reading in Matthew 6, uh, the passage I will read, really 1 through 18, it's not very often that in a word-by-word word study of Scripture that I leapfrog over a passage. Uh, but you're going to see verses 1 through 8 and verses 16 through 18 um, fit very nicely together. And the question we might have to ask is, why is there seemingly uh, a disruption to the perfect symmetry and order that's given in the verses we will read? And we'll seek to answer that as well. But beginning in verse 1, "...take heed that you do not your alms, your righteousness before men." to be seen of them. Otherwise, you have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But when thou doest alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth, that thine alms may be in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret himself shall reward thee openly." And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. But when ye pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Be not ye therefore like unto them, for your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask him. And we'll leap over this pattern prayer to verse 16. Moreover, when you fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear unto men to fast. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou fastest, anoint thine head and wash thy face, that thou appear not unto men to fast, but unto thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee. And let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Now, we have a, a country that still has reasonable freedoms that we can gather here to worship you as a, a church family. Uh, Lord, help us not to take that privilege and this history for granted. Uh, thank you that we can come and read as I just did from an English Bible, a, a language which we here can understand. 
Uh, thank you for the way you have inspired your word. We thank you for the uh, originals, the autographs. We thank you, Lord, for the rich uh, history of manuscripts, the manuscript families. Thank you, Lord, for your preservation of your word. Thank you for translators throughout the centuries, at least in our English language, who have taken the Hebrew and the Aramaic and the Greek and have given it to us in our language. Thank you so much for that. Lord, we do pray for the hedges. Um, difficult work, tedious work, important work, eternal work. Lord, continue to give Josh and his family grace as they serve. Give them safety as they travel. May their spirits be refreshed even by their time here with us. And continue uh, with these projects uh, that were mentioned and others that are forthcoming, that the Word of God would be uh, translated in these other languages in Africa. And so, Lord, do, uh, continue to do a great work. Lord, we thank you for a, a good number of our folks who are out today doing, doing service for you. We look forward uh, to hearing the reports back from the various mission teams and groups. We especially want to pray for the youth this week as they're traveling and ministering in Nevada. Uh, we pray that this would be a, a, a shot in the arm to this church plant. We pray that there would be uh, fruit, uh, not just the development of good character in our people, but there would be the fruit of souls uh, that would be saved as a result of the gospel being preached. And then, Lord, we do pray for um, the Richards family. We pray for Dwayne's three sons, Dwayne's friends, that you would give us grace. You would comfort and encourage and strengthen us in the inner man. We know that uh, for the believer to die is gain, so, Lord, we would not wish for Dwayne to be back with us. Uh, we're thankful that he is present with you, and uh, we rejoice uh, with you, you Lord. Uh, there, we know that the death of one of your children is precious in your sight, and so, Lord, thank you for taking your brother home, your son home. And uh, we thank you that our days truly are numbered, that you have a plan for our lives. Uh, you're the author and finisher of our faith. You're the one who brought us into this world. You're the one who, who takes us out as well, and your plan is perfect. Now, as we look into your word uh, this morning, that we'd be strengthened and encouraged that the points that your son taught on the Sermon on the Mount uh, would, would resonate in our hearts and lives as well. Uh, you know our propensity to proclaim our own piety. You know our desire to to be viewed in honorable ways, that we long for that with people, and we at times play uh, ridiculous games that you just, just please, are displeased with. And so, Lord, I pray this morning that we would uh, be refreshed by this passage, but that we would leave today saying there's a few things we need to adjust to honor you more. And so, Lord, sanctify us this morning through your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. For those who have just hopped on board with our series, our series is on the theme of fulfillment. Uh, Matthew writes uh, a lot prophetically, and so I'm trying to highlight those prophetic passages as they surface. If there's a passage that we look at without prophecy, then I, I note that. And so this week we do not have a, an emphasis on prophecy, more an emphasis on practical living. Uh, not only what we are to believe, but how we're to, to live, how we are to do righteously, uh, showing forth our faith. This passage especially deals with uh, a warning to us that we would not play the hypocrite. Uh, the Greek word for a hypocrite is an actor, one who wears a mask, pretends to be someone or something that he or she isn't. And so there's a, a strong, strong warning 
uh, throughout these paragraphs uh, regarding hypocrisy. In verse 2, it talks about the hypocrites, uh, how, how they do their giving in ways that they can be seen by others. Uh, we, we find here in verse 5, uh, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites, as relates to praying. So a warning, don't be like the hypocrites in this regard. And then in verse 16, be not as the hypocrites as it relates to their fasting practices to be seen uh, likewise by men. And Steve, if you could fast forward that slide, if you could, to the topic avoid. Thank you. I'm not connecting. Thank you. So uh, just recently I found this, this story about the mayor of New York um, quite interesting. Uh, maybe you've heard it. The New York Times has just posted the story. Uh, this is Mayor Eric Adams, and he wants to come across as a, a real advocate of fighting crime and a great supporter of those in blue and how he just cherishes uh, the memories of, of officers who went down uh, in, in serving uh, the city. And just recently, the story came out that he keeps in his wallet a picture uh, of a fallen policeman who was, who was murdered in Harlem years before, decades ago. And you, you think about your wallet. Um, what's in your wallet <laughs> uh, this morning? Uh, what, what pictures do you keep in your wallet? Maybe a spouse, um, maybe a, a child. I'm thinking of the hedges. You don't have a wallet big enough to put all of those pictures in there, the future pictures. But, you know, the people you love probably the most are in your wallet. And uh, he is saying, that the mayor is saying, I have kept the picture of this fallen officer in my wallet to cherish his memory. I was so, I'm so devoted to such men like him, and I've just had it in my wallet. Well, the story just came out that that's not true, that he had asked several of his office workers uh, to basically hijack that picture of this fallen officer, to do it in black and white, and give it the appearance of age by even spilling coffee on it. And so now he comes out before this is made public, showing you, I keep this picture of a fallen officer in my wallet, and I just love officers like him, and I'm devoted to their, to their work. And then it comes out, that's not true at all. Uh, he is more devoted to his own image. And if he has to concoct such a story, that means he doesn't have a real story of support for the officers. Uh, this we would call hypocrisy. And uh, it's, it's shameful, it's, it's discouraging to see in any public role. But uh, probably one of the biggest accusations that comes our way in the church is, I don't want to go to church because there's so many what in the church. You know, so we are at times accused, and probably accurately, that we pretend to be something that we are not. And there's just something in the fallen nature that we want to be honored, we want to be seen, we want to be praised, we want to be applauded, uh, we want to put ourselves forth. And in the church, different games are played to do such hypocrisy. And Christ, of course, is fully aware of, of, of these hypocritical acts. And so in this chapter, especially in the verses I have read, he's going to deal with the topic of hypocrisy. The scripture is full of stories about hypocrites. So it's not relegated to one time period or one group of person or any time in church history. We can talk about Ananias and Sapphira and their hypocrisy, but there is hypocrisy in the church in the medieval ages. There's hypocrisy in the church today. The first hypocrite, of course, was Cain. He pretended to worship God as he made an offering unto the Lord that the Lord would not accept. 
And as a result of being found out in his hypocrisy, being unmasked, he kills his brother Abel out of resentment. So when hypocrisy is unmasked, look out. It's a dangerous thing, especially in a religious context. Absalom, the son of King David, hypocritically vowed allegiance to his father, King David, said, Dad, I am for you, I am loyal, I am in support of your, your reign, while saying that outwardly, privately, he was planning and plotting his overthrow. That is hypocrisy. The supreme hypocrite of Scripture, of course, is Judas Iscariot, who feigned loyal love to Jesus and betrayed him with a kiss. So this is a serious issue about hypocrisy. And I, I would not want for us in any way to, to play the role of a hypocrite where people see the hypocrisy, the duplicity, to see the game and be turned off or even turned away from Jesus. So uh, this is a, an important message. He's going to deal with three different applications of hypocrisy uh, in this particular chapter. Let's look at it. This chapter has, as all of the chapters, enormous structure. We're going to look at the general heading in verse 1, where the topic of not doing your alms or righteousness before men to be seen, just a general topic. And then there are three sub-points to the topic. One deals with giving, one deals with prayer, and a third topic deals with fasting. It is interesting that three of these things that are listed are three of the five pillars of Islam. So the issue dealing with hypocrisy uh, in these topics isn't relegated, again, just to, to, to Jews or to Christians. Uh, it's a, a problem of human nature, the problem of hypocrisy. Note with me on the slide here, in the three paragraphs that I've read, that they are three perfectly parallel paragraphs. They each have four points in common. There's a warning, as stated in each, as to how we're not to act. Then there's a guarantee that if you act in that way, you will be rewarded by man, but it will be short-lived and temporal. And then third, as relates to these three categories of giving, praying, and fasting, there's further specific instruction on how to perform those acts, especially privately and secretly. And then the assurance is given in each of these case studies that the Father who sees in secret will indeed reward openly. Now let's go back to a question. As we go for this chapter, I just leapfrogged over verses 9 through 15, the prayer that the Lord taught us disciples, that model pattern prayer. If you and I were writing this chapter, I'm glad we weren't, we would probably would have put verses 16 and 18 following verse 8. That would just make logical sense. Perfect paragraph dealing one topic, another paragraph repeating similar themes, and the third one just lump it together, and then go to your model prayer. So those uh, who do not have a high regard for Scripture will say that um, there's a problem with this chapter, that it should have been lumped together, these three units we're looking at, but that there was a redactor, that's an editor, uh, going from another source, whether it's Q source or whatever source, and that later the chapter was kind of recreated, shuffled around a little bit. So you'll read at times these type of statements made by the wolves who do not believe that the word of God is inspired. As a result of a low view of scripture, 
they're looking at the scripture it's not really sourced by God and it has errors in it and here's a chapter where the order seems to be malfunctioning one particular liberal commentator says regarding scripture like this or the arrangement of a chapter like this it's not quite clear why this rather unsystematically arranged collection should stand moreover the individual parts of this collection have no connection with each other this is already clear from the confusion and lack of order in its contents. These facts are so self-evident that the assertion of the disunity of the book does not require exhaustive proof. So if you read some of this wolf language as we make comments on the chapter, they will say this chapter is disorganized, it's illogical, it's the work of an editor, it's not trustworthy from God. And um, that's, that's something you have to be on guard against. Now, as I look at this chapter, you guys are almost sick and tired of me talking about it. But you have in, in Scripture, if you read a passage, it seems to be ordered in almost a random, maybe even disorganized way. Nine out of ten times, it's a chiastic structure where there's a centering principle going on where there's a unit in view, where there's a central standalone axis at the heart of it. So as we preach through the Sermon on the Mount, it's critically important to realize that the central point, the central message to the sermon is the model prayer that we are leapfrogging over today. It's put right chiastically in the center of the sermon. And it's an extension of the second point I'll mention today about praying. What God is going to say with this unique format is for the believer to commune with God in prayer is extremely important, highly valued by God, and even structured into the very format of the chapter. I will not go into all the values and the uses of chiasms, but this is a beautiful book. But we're going to highlight on the three paragraphs next week we'll come to the model prayer that Christ gives between paragraph 2 and 3 in my message this morning. So let's just jump into it. Chapter 6, verse 1. For, for a Joshua Hedge, he's handling the scriptures all the time. What an exciting job. He's looking at the, at the, at the languages and looking in his English translations and he's looking at uh, the language of some other people set and trying to go from one language to another is very, very challenging, but he wrestles with these verbs, I'm sure. So I like in my preaching to highlight certain grammatical points or certain verb points, and I think the imperatives are important to stress. So you'll see these little brackets or parentheses with imperatives. These are the marching orders. This, these are the stress points. So right from the start, before he gets really into the nitty-gritty of giving, praying, and fasting, he says, take heed, pay attention to, give care to. And so we have a command here to really pay attention to the details. So uh, I have to stop here or I will be the biggest hypocrite in the service. Yesterday we had a, a funeral, and I deeply appreciate all the staff and others who helped and supported uh, Bruce's, uh, the funeral for Bruce's mother. It was a beautiful service, great reception. Melody and others, thank you so much for your work, Steve, and your team, again, with the sound. Everyone who worked together in the office, thank you. A lot of work. So uh, we were out of town, and um, we got back late Friday night. And so yesterday morning, I, I, I couldn't remember when the funeral started. I thought it was afternoon. I thought pretty sure it was afternoon. 
So I thought, maybe two, maybe one, maybe noon. So um, I'm, I'm at home working on other things, getting ready for today and other stuff. And I said, you know what? There's a huge paper trail given to me. It'd be very easy to find when that funeral is. And so uh, I, I clicked on a, an email from Debbie from the office. And um, on page one, I didn't read this heading. I didn't read anything but one line. It says event date, which would have been yesterday's date. And the time, it was 2 p.m. So I said, okay, the funeral is at 2 p.m. So I'm at home. I'm, I'm not, not yet dressed in a suit to come to church for the funeral. It's 12.57. I get a call from Pastor Skip. He says, uh, Pastor, where are you? Are you okay? I said, yeah, I'm doing great. He says, we got a funeral today. I said, I know that. I'll be there pretty soon. Yeah, yeah. I'll actually be early today. I was going to be early. Imagine that. And uh, he says, well, we start in three minutes. I said, you're kidding. What do you mean three minutes? He said, yeah, it's one o'clock. I said, no. In my mind, I'm thinking two o'clock. I looked it up in the morning. So I ran up here, and Bruce, I'm so sorry to miss, to miss the first part of the funeral. I was, I was, I think, seven minutes late. My wife, I think, was nine minutes late. She almost beat me up here. We raced. Yes, thank you, thank you. So uh, what happened is on the forms, and Debbie sends all these forms and all these details. It takes a lot of work to do these things, and she does a beautiful job. Well, page one in those attachments is the reception form that follows the funeral. And the event time is two o'clock. I didn't read the top uh, where it says funeral reception kitchen reservation form. <laughs> but the thing was really convicting, right under that line it says, please read this form thoroughly. <laughs> Pay attention to the details. Take heed, take care. And uh, how important that is. Without taking heed or care, uh, we can get ourselves in trouble. Take heed that you do not your alms or righteousness before men to be seen of them. Now earlier in chapter 5 of this sermon, it talks about being the light of the world and doing our good works before men so that they would be seen by others for the glory of God. So this text isn't contradicting the chapter 5 text. The issue is the, the motivation behind the things that we do. Are we doing what we're doing because we are trying to be seen and honored and applauded by men? If that is our motivation, then we're in violation of the text. And so it's a very, very convicting text because there are more than three categories where we like to show ourselves to others to be praised. It goes beyond just giving, praying, and fasting. How about your knowledge of Scripture? Can I wax elephant and try to impress you with my knowledge, right? So there's different ways we can try to impress people, uh, to put the mask on and play the game, to be the actor, and, and to get the applause of man. And so right from the heading of this, this section, he's saying, you take heed. Be careful not to do this. Do not do your righteous things to be seen of men. Otherwise, you have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. So if you're looking for an earthly audience to impress them of your piety, uh, you're, on, you're on forbidden ground. Uh, I remember a, a prayer meeting this gentleman was having um, back, in, back in Clemson. I, we would often have prayer meetings outside underneath the pine trees where we had picnic tables. 
And one older gentleman had gone out there before everyone else, which, praise the Lord, that's great. And as I was going out, I think it was the second one to go out in that direction, and this guy was sitting on a table, sitting on a bench on the table, and he was a praying. I mean loud. And, and, and the Lord has very good hearing, but he is praying loud. And I said, well, that's fine. He may, he may have hearing issues, whatever, and he's praying. But then the thing that caught me off guard was he would keep looking up to see if anyone was coming. He was looking for an audience, and he had, he had the audience of heaven. <laughs> and I think a verse that stands uh, to be applied. And so it's very easy for, for us to look for an audience. We're doing this to be seen of men rather than to be seen of God and solely by the Lord. So there's a, a, an amazing general heading here. Let's look at the three sub-points now to not showing or, or seeking to be seen by men with your righteous acts. Let's look at these three points. First, do not give to be seen of men. Here's the warning. Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee, at the hip, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. It's interesting what Augustine says about this text and this topic. He says, The love of honor is the deadly bane of true piety. Other vices bring forth evil works, but this brings forth good works in an evil way. That's the, the insidious nature of hypocrisy. It might have been a good thing for someone that you did, but your motivation was to be seen. So a good work done for the wrong motivation, to do it in an evil way. It's interesting here, the word alms is the word in which we get the word mercy, or translated mercy, so to do your mercy. And initially, alms refers to any act of mercy or pity that you might have on someone over time, uh, this word was relegated to giving money or food or clothing or any act to, to help people out in their, their need. Uh, the word is Elias. Uh, we as a church, we're a, a charitable organization. We're a nonprofit org organization. We would often be called from a political or government viewpoint, we're an Elamasonary organization. We're an organization based on, on mercy, on giving. Gifts that come in, gifts that go out. So what do we do with this topic here? Therefore, when you do your alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee. Uh, today we might say, and this is an anachronism, but we might say, don't toot your own horn. Don't toot your own horn. Uh, I don't think that's exactly all that this writer had in mind. I think it's bigger than that. But uh, we're not to toot our own horn. We're not to say, look what I just did. I just helped someone out. Let me rehearse what I did for so-and-so. Uh, let me proclaim my piety to you in this regard and how I, I served others. Uh, no, it tells us don't do that. Don't, don't sound a, a trumpet before thee. Of course, the trumpet was very significant in the life of, of a Jewish family in the first century. Trumpets were used to gather people for prayer. Uh, trumpets were sounded to gather people for Sabbath worship. So here, um, trumpets are important. I think this, is, uh, this use of the word trumpet is in an interesting way. I don't think it was literally they were going down the streets trumpeting and then telling you what they did, trumpet, and telling you what they did. 
So I, I think what we have here is what we would call a hyperbole, so an in, a, a, a word choice that's intentionally exaggerated to add graphic force to the warning. So some of this is almost comical. The picture of someone trumpeting their good works. You, you can see it. You can see the person trumpeting. You can hear the noise. And, and usually uh, in, in the orchestra, uh, you have the clarinets, mild-mannered, gentle. Who's the, usually the type A person, and what instrument do they play? It's the trumpet. So you kind of get the type A person there playing that trumpet, you know, and uh, the picture's so graphic. In, in, in many ways, an exaggerated way to get our attention. Look at me. Honor me. Praise me. Talk about me. Applaud me for what I've done. And uh, this idea of using the word trumpet here may also relate to, to the Jews' way of giving. Um, if you came into the temple before you went into your corporate worship, there were giving receptacles. You see the picture here? Let's see if I can get the right thing here. You see the receptacle here? A box. You see this metal thing on top? Has the shape of what? It looks like a what? Looks like a trumpet. So this is uh, trumpet number 13. Trumpet number 13. So just for a moment, in your mind, think of that giving receptacle. So the Jewish worshiper would come in and put their money into the trumpet-looking top. And what's nice about the trumpet there, you can put the money down it, but you can't reach your hand down there and pull the money out. Okay, don't even think about it. You do not want to get your hand caught in the, in the, in the receptacle. So the way the Pharisees would do it, when they came in to give, let's say they had a $10 gift. Rather than just put a $10 bill in, they would take the $10 and break it down into the coins, like $10 worth of pennies and carry their sack of money and come to the receptacle like that and dump their coins into the trumpet mouth, making a lot of noise. You'd feel like you were in Las Vegas, you know, with one-armed bandit, all the money flying out. And you'd hear all that noise, you'd say, whoa, did you hear that? Did you see what that guy's doing? Man, did he give a gift. And then put yourself next to this trumpet-like receptacle and look at a little widow I love little old ladies with their little pocketbooks. And they open their little pocketbook up, you know. Do you see the little lady coming up? See the little old man coming up? You see the little lady reaching in and pulling out the two little coins? Do you see her? And she comes over to trumpet number 13 at the temple. And she drops two little coins in. Who's watching her give? Jesus is watching exactly what she is doing. It would be Jesus who said, you know what? That woman gave more than all of you because you had plenty left over after you gave. When she gave, she had nothing left over. She, she gave from, from deep down, sacrificially. So Jesus is watching the giving. He's watching the hypocrite who is trying to make sure you see what they give, that you would be impressed with their sacrifice and, and how much that they gave. Notice where these hypocrites do their show. It's in the synagogues. Well, that's a, that, that you would expect. That's a place where you give publicly and indoors. But as opportunity arises, they're in the streets. And the word street here is alleys. It's the narrow streets. That's in view of this word choice. 
And so they're out in the streets and, and, and they're, they're, they're giving. They're, they're giving. And they want you to see what they're giving. I, I always like when, the, when there's a guy that comes to me and says, Pastor, here's a check. I didn't get a chance to put it in the offering. Would you put it in the offering? All right, it's folded. Do I look at how much is on it? Of course. No, actually, I don't. Actually, I don't. I don't want to see what he gives. And often I'll say, look, look, I'm the wrong person to give it to. I don't know what anyone gives. I don't even have a key. When I gave Bruce a tour of, of, the, uh, of the church when he became a member. The only room I said, I can't take you into the finance office. I don't have a key to it. I don't really go into very often other than say hi to, to Jennifer or whoever's working. You know, I don't know what you give, but God does. And he knows the motives behind whatever giving you do, whatever righteous acts you do. But here, these people publicly, indoors, outdoors, religious context, public context, it's all about the show. That's what a hypocrite is. It's all about the show. It's all about themselves. And wow, they get glory. People say, wow, that was really impressive. That is really impressive. But Jesus says, verily I say unto you, they have their reward. They just got it. They just got your, your praise, your repetition of the story to someone else. Okay, that's, that's their reward. It's by man and it's temporal, and it's over. I think we have sacrificed many things to that course of action. In our Christian experience, how many times did we just have to talk about what we did? Couldn't hold back, couldn't lay off, had to just share a little, here's what I did, here's what we gave, here's how we helped. Oh, how easy it is to just talk about our good works to others and trumpet them with, hopefully you'll realize what a spiritual giant I am, when in reality most of us are not that at all. We're acting, we're playing the game. So do not give to be seen of men. Now, what happens in each of these paragraphs is first the warning and then there's the instruction as to how to do the topic, in this case giving. But when thou doest alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth. That's a command, let know. I don't usually go to this technical of an aorist tense inserted, but it is important, the tense that the choice, that choice that was made, is saying, don't even do this once. May there not be, a, not even a singular act that you share between your right and left hand. And again, this is hyperbole. When I work with my hands, you, they work together. This is really close to home. This is part of my body, you know. So what he's saying here is, Give your gift. Don't trumpet it. Implication, do it in silence. Do it secretly. And don't even let your right hand know what your left hand did. Well, that's an interesting, interesting way to say that. You know, the, the Jews at that temple actually had a place at the temple that was set aside if you wanted to give a gift and you didn't want anyone to know about it. Edersheim writes about it. It's fascinating. It was called the Chamber of the Silent. So if you wanted to give a gift in, in the most confidential way, there was a way you could do it. If you needed help, if you needed help from the temple or the synagogue, uh, the Jews had a way, especially at the temple, to meet there at the Chamber of the Silent. So the giver, is, is it done in confidence and silence, and the person receiving it doesn't lose their, let's say, honor. And I think that's important. Rather than trumpeting our good works, how about we all engage and go to the chamber of the silent 
and this isn't good English or good preaching, but just shut up about it. Just simply shut up. Just a Wyoming thing, shut up. You know, up at Camp Grace, they kill an average of 23 mountain lions. We, ta- we tell you this after the teens get back from their trip. But the farm, the Buffington Ranch, right next to our, adjoining our camp of 640 acres, the Buffington Ranch, they kill an average of about 23 mountain lions a year. A year. And I said, wow, do you get a license for all those? What a stupid question. And you know the 3S rule. And the last one is shut up. You shoot, you shovel, and you shut up. Okay. You get in trouble when people talk about the 23 mountain lions that our friends kill. Okay. That's when people get in trouble. I should shut up. Shut up. Don't talk about it. Don't let your right hand know what the left hand gave. Just be done with it. Just move on. Move on. And when you're tempted to say, you know what, I... No, shut up. Just stop. Stop it. Just stop it. Okay? For there's reward for those who do the secret giving with the right motivation to honor God and to be seen solely by Him, that thine alms may be in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret Himself shall reward thee openly. That's powerful. And how fun it is to trust God to His Word to, to just give unto the Lord, to help someone in their need, yes, but to do it biblically and properly and as stated here, and to see God honor you. Do you have the faith to wait for that honoring? Because right now you want the instant gratification. I did this, I trumpet this, now I show you this, look at me. Isn't it much better to give it to God and be done with it, and if he wants to do something with it, to let him honor you? When that happens, that's really special. That's really special when God does it, rather than you manipulating it. Secondly, do not pray to be seen of men. Here's the warning in the text. And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are. For they love to pray standing in the synagogue. So this is kind of a Jewish context. And standing was probably the standard form in prayer. Mark says, while you stand praying, forgive. Uh, Yes, there are times you'll see people prostrate. Sometimes you'll see them kneeling. But often it was just standing praying, standing praying. Standing praying. So when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets. And he uses a different word for street here. This would be your your major outlets, your major roads, your biggest intersections. So sure enough, what you have here is, again, there's a context within the synagogue and then publicly and outside where people are standing and praying. The point is they were being very ostentatious. They were showing off about their praying. And I think there's, there's a danger when we pray with others around us. There is a danger. The Bible does not forbid public prayer. Many examples of it. But what is forbidden in Scripture is the public prayer that's ostentatious, look at me, look at me, listen to me, articulate in King James language. Listen to me and my, my spiritual walk with God and how impressed you should be about me. So here they are. And I think there's a temptation when we pray to, to just not be faithful. To be a little showy. A little showy. I think the two, one of the, two of the most intense times we see in the life of Christ were relegated to, to, to praying. 40 days in the wilderness. Fasting, praying. Satan really uh, tried to get into that context. Garden of Gethsemane. Is there a more intense prayer or setting that you've ever seen in the life of Jesus? Poor Satan trying to, again, infiltrate. And so Satan wants us to take that which is so pleasing to God, that incense to God's nostrils, we could say, and to take that which is pure and good and to twist it by our pride. 
to be seen of men or to be heard of men. So here's the instruction about praying. And again, throughout the whole section here, I, I think there's a lot of excessive language used to, to just create a picture to then communicate the truth. So here we go. But thou, when you pray, enter into your closet. Most homes in the first century in, in Jerusalem had only one room with a door in it inside your house. It would be a closet. It would be your pantry. So he's saying here, when you pray, go into the pantry or a closet and then shut the door. Shut everything else out of your life. and People, whatever, noises, whatever you can, and pray in your pantry, in your closet. Now, does he literally mean that? Well, in some cases, that may be the best place to pray. But what I think he's trying to communicate here, the principle is when you pray, you're not out publicly trying to be ostentatious, but to try to get alone with God where it's you and God and you're communing with him. To follow the example of the Lord Jesus, Luke 5, 16, he withdrew himself into the wilderness to get away from the people. And the Bible says, and prayed. So a really powerful text here communicates the importance of praying and getting alone with the Lord. And it says here, pray, it's a command, to your Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. So very, very powerful instruction regarding, again, the secrecy element uh, of so much of our prayer life. And then the substance is then developed. Let's look at the substance that is now communicated. But again, when ye pray, there are several things you shouldn't do. One is use not vain repetitions. Vain stammerings, prattle, repeating, repeating. Most of you say, if preacher would stop repeating himself, we could have been out probably at 11.30. Okay. 11.15. Thank you, John. That really hurts. <laughs> so we repeat ourselves. How many times have you heard me repeat myself? I've, I, I ask your staff occasionally, is there something I'm doing that's annoying in the pulpit? <sighs> yes, Pastor. You're saying this phrase over and over and over again. I am? Yeah, you are. It's really annoying. Have you ever prayed with someone and they repeat some phrase 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30 times? Do that person a favor. You might be the spouse. And say, honey, you keep repeating this word or this phrase. It's really annoying. It just seems to be filler in your prayer, quite frankly. Okay. So vain, vain repetitions. Uh, and, and this is kind of, kind of pagan. You know, the Buddhists, they have their spinning prayer wheels where they spin their prayers. There's prayers written inside the wheels, and each time the wheel goes around, their picture is that the prayer goes up to their God, their deity. And the more times they can spin the prayer wheel and repeat that prayer in the prayer wheel, they'll get a response from God. That's what the heathen do. Uh, for the Jew, this is context more, more Gentile than Jewish, but the Jews did the same thing. First century... They would rise up in the morning and quote the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, in the morning, every morning, and in the evening. And then they had a, a booklet written called the Shemona, which means in Hebrew, 18 prayers. They had 18 prayers written for them. So if you were a good Pharisee, you would quote the Shema to start your day, and you would go and pray all 18 prayers at 9 in the morning. 
You would repeat that at noon and repeat all 18 prayers at noon. And at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, you do the same thing. Wow. But when you pray, use not vain repetitions. For those who prayed, some may have taken the words and prayed from their heart and connected with God. Others mumbled through the words. In fact, they created a Reader's Digest form of the Shimona. Do you want to do this and get through it quickly? Here's an abbreviated form. Wow, that's good. I, I can get credit with God and pray shorter. Okay, and repeat and repeat. I wonder how much repetition we have. How much verbosity, as it says there in the last phrase, for they think that they should be heard for their much speaking. I love the Greek word there for much speaking. Polylogos, basically. Logia. Poly, many, many. Poly, logos, word. Many words. <laughs> they think, if I can say more words, God will hear and respond. I'll get the ear and attention of God if I just speak more. And again, sometimes we think we preach longer, <laughs> will have more effect too. That's not always true. I, we, we, had a, we had a wedding once and a um, beautiful couple, Georgia couple, Georgia and Alabama couple. And um, as we were preparing to do the wedding and meeting in advance, um, it came up that Rhonda's grandfather was a Baptist preacher. And he was like 119 years of age. He was an older guy. And he had been preaching in the hollers and been hollering in the hollers for for decades and they were wrestling the grandfather wanted to have a part in the service maybe the challenge maybe the vows and we were strategizing I had no problem with that at all but they said you know what if we give him the pulpit he will preach forever okay forever maybe even longer if there's such a thing so, so we said, okay, what, what can we do to honor your grandfather and not get into a situation where you and your wedding party is fidgeting up there and people are passing out in their high heels, okay? So we had this great idea. We can have him pray. I will we'll finish the vows, and before you kiss the bride, we'll have him pray a blessing upon them, the union. So we get to that part in the, cer part in the ceremony, and I asked the gentleman to come up, and he came up there, and and he began to pray and pray. Probably prayed for the hedges in Africa. <laughs> prayed for folks in Australia. Prayed for folks in South America. And he prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. He preached and he prayed. He prayed and he prayed. Elisa, was it 13 plus minutes? Do you remember? I'm thinking 15. I'm going under it, so this isn't hyperbole. 13 plus minutes. Can you imagine? I almost felt like nudging everyone in the party. Let's just go. <laughs> Have the meal come back. Okay? Oh, 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 oh. When you listen to a long-winded prayer, Spurgeon said a long prayer kills the prayer meeting. Okay? Uh, if you hear the guy praying solely in King James language... I'm always suspect. I'm always suspect. I'm not judging the heart, but there's a little flag if it, if it sounds really King Jamesy. And if you add for, for one of us, if we add an Irish or English accent, I'm really skeptical. Okay. So when the guy goes in the King James language, Irish accent, and he's he's from Alabama, 
I, I got a problem with it. I'm, 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 I'm watching, I'm listening. And you hear this unbelievable, powerful prayer. You say, wow, that was incredibly incredible. Did you hear the language and the words? And that was a masterpiece. You know, the cherubim must have been brought into the building, you know. But if you hear that same guy pray in another context, guess what he does? It's word for word the same prayer with the British accent. And if you hear him in another context that he doesn't know you're in the mix, it's the same prayer. It's rehearsed. It's a script. It's, it's what you give the actor saying, would you take this part? Would you learn these lines? Could you play this role? And we're not the ones that judge our hearts, but the Lord is saying, avoid the vain repetitions. Don't think God needs to hear a lot of verbosity. Stop it. Stop the vanity, the vain repetitions. You think this is not just a Gentile heathen problem. You think about the practice of so many in the area of prayer. How about for our Catholic friends, the Hail Mary? <laughs> okay, just think about it. What is the longest Hail Mary? Some of you say, I'm not Catholic. I don't know what you're talking about. Well, if you're Catholic, you hold your rosary, hold the crucifix, you say the Apostles' Creed, you hold the top first bead, and you do one R, our Father, which gets into the next section of Scripture here. And then you say, as you hold bead two, you'll make this repetition, and bead three and bead four, you say this, Hail, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with us. With you, blessed are you among women. And blessed is the fruit of your womb, Jesus, Holy Mary, Mother of God. Pray for us sinners now, and at, at the hour of our death, amen. And you just do that, you keep repeating it. In, on record, you know what the longest Hail Mary was? Right there. Aaron Rodgers. <laughs> I did this for my friend John, and I, I, feel, I feel like retracting after you kind of undermine me in the sermon. You were kidding, thank you. This is the longest Hail Mary to win a game. This is Green Bay quarterback Aaron Rodgers, who, who, was, who threw a last-second touchdown pass four yards deep in the end zone, 69 yards of football in the air to win the game against the sorry Detroit Lions. I do have a video of that. I was going to play it, but for time's sake, we can't. I'd rather be more verbose. The rosary came from Buddhism by the way of the Spanish Muslims during the Middle Ages. Repetition, repetition. So, boy, you're pretty rough on them. How about the Anglicans? I have an Anglican background as a family. Anglican Church formed uh, after the Act of Supremacy in 1534 was pronounced by the newly formed English government, uh, announcing their official break from Rome. January 15th, 1549, a project was begun uh, by Thomas Cranmer, Archbishop of Canterbury, to create a book on prayer. What could be wrong with that? And certainly there's some, some beautiful prayers and language in, in the Anglican book of prayer. But it basically was that you who are Catholic, and now we've broken from your Catholic church, you have your Rosemary, you have your Hail Marys, and you have your repetitious prayers. Here is a way we could follow it. In fact, this, this book, when it came out, was attacked fiercely because it was based on a Catholic serum rite. Very Catholic. So, um, so Protestants can repeat their prayers. What about us? What about us here? We get to the Lord's Prayer in the next section next week. Is it wrong to repeat the Lord's Prayer? I think, again, your heart, motivation, and context, certainly. But the Lord's Prayer, as it's seen in Matthew 6 and Luke, they are worded differently. The impression is, 
wasn't prayed always the same. There was adaptation, there was modification, there was, there was spontaneity, it was extemporaneous. But how often are we like the Jews I just described or the heathen uh, where we are repetitive? How do we get out of that mode? How do we get out of that mode? I'll make a suggestion. I'll make a suggestion. The scriptures, I think, were designed for us to read daily. And we who have a Bible, and I appreciate Kramer for this, when he wrote, the, wrote most of the prayers in that book, he challenged the English reading people, read the Bible through in one year. That's good. And here are the prayers that kind of you can say and repeat. I think the Bible was designed by God to be read through over and over and over. And the most natural reading schedule to read the Bible is probably a one-year reading schedule. The Bible could have been written by God in volumes, filling up the whole room, never to be completed in reading, really. It could have been written 10 pages or, or one page, whatever God would have chosen. He chose, you know, 32 plus thousand verses, 66 books in our English Bible. And if you read 3.2 of those chapters a day, you can read through the Bible in one year. That's a great goal. But my theory, I'm trying to confirm it, I think is very accurate, very close, is as God speaks to us through his word, and you're reading the word and hearing from God, in those same chapters you read each day is some teaching on the topic of prayer or an actual prayer. We'll illustrate this in a couple weeks. What I'm trying to communicate is God is speaking to us through his word, and he's giving you instruction on how to talk to him by prayers, examples of prayers. And they're nearly in every three or four chapters of the entire Bible. I just finished the New Testament to prove my theory, at least from a New Testament viewpoint. There are only two sections in the entire New Testament that do not have a some statement regarding prayer in every three to four chapters. And depending how you arrange your breaks in the chapters, because the breaks in the chapters were not inspired, they were added many, many, many years later. So I think I can move the boundaries a little bit and say, as you pray, as you read through the scripture, three or four chapters a day, there's going to be something on prayer. Imagine taking that prayer statement, that example, and taking it and personalizing it and praying back to God on that prayer theme you were just reading. We're going to do a little of this in the book of Psalms. It'll revolutionize your prayer life if we take what God is teaching us about prayer and bringing it back to him in prayer, personalizing the passages. Very, very powerful. Let's finish. God's aware of our needs. He's going to answer these prayers. Look at the text. Be not ye therefore like unto them, for your Father knoweth what things you have need of before you ask him. Okay. God knows our needs. How does this relate to prayer? So if you're a Calvinist, the Calvinist says, uh, all we've got to do in prayer, I'm a Calvinist, all I've got to do is just know what God's will is and line up with God regarding what he's already determined to do. And whether we pray or not, it will be done. I know that's extreme. The Arminian states that prayer is beseeching God to do what he otherwise would not do. And only will prayer, with prayer, God will do it. How about a position of antinomy or tension? where both of those statements are, are, have truth. God knows our needs, but we are commanded to pray. And it's great to pray, and seek the Lord, and seek God answer them. Finally, we'll conclude here, is the third illustration here, do not fast to be seen of men. 
Wow. Does anyone fast? Don't even tell me. <laughs> Don't even tell me. <laughs> but I'm asking the question rhetorically, do any of us pray? Do any of us fast? Setting apart a time normally given to eating, where we take that to study the scriptures and to spend time in prayer. Do any of us do that? Do any of us do that? There's a, there's a warning here on how not to do it. And then there's instruction on how to do it. And this is a, a, a beautiful passage. The Pharisees fasted twice a week. The major days in the Jewish market were the second and fifth day of the week. Just count on it. You, the, the, the merchants brought their stuff the second and fifth day to the, street, to the market. So the Pharisees fasted on the second and fifth day. Why did they fast on the second and fifth day? Luke talks about, I'm a Pharisee, I fast twice a week. It's always the second and fifth day because that would be the day you would normally buy food. So if you go down to the marketplace and you have a face disfigured, that's, that's hyperbole too, you're not disfiguring your face. But you're, you, you look rather pained. You look at rather in anguish. and You look kind of martyr-like and you're sending many a message that I am not eating. My, my shopping cart is empty because I am, I am fasting today. Look at the spiritual giant. Are you fasting today? No, you're shopping. Okay. Now, we're not required to fast. Paul doesn't say, you know, fast without ceasing. That would have problems. He didn't say pray without ceasing. He didn't say fast without ceasing. But to pray, Wow. Just when you fast, don't talk about it. Don't make all the contortions. Don't act like you're hungry. Don't let your stomach growl with others around you. Um, don't brag about it. you've been fasting for three days because you lost your cat and you're trying to get your cat back, okay? No, no, just, just do life, do life. Just whatever you normally would do. Anoint your hair if that's what you do. Wash your face if that's what you do occasionally. Just do it, just do it, just do it. And he says here that thou appear not unto men to fast, but unto your Father which is in secret, and thy Father which is seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. Wow. So in summary, with these three paragraphs, very powerful. There's a caution, take heed to the warnings, to not give, pray, or fast to be seen of men. The concern, if you do not take heed to these warnings, you will be rewarded, but only by man, and not by God. There's the clarity, the instruction, is to perform your acts of piety in secret, and as the scripture teaches knowing with confidence that your Father will reward you openly. I think that reward is now and in the future. It's no surprise that the next verse says, lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, <laughs> but upon, in heaven. So the treasures that are being laid up in heaven is when you in secret do your righteousness, when you do your alms. The treasures in heaven uh, are those when you, when you pray in your prayer closet. Those treasures are being laid up when you fast, secretly. He'll reward you today, but he'll also eternally reward you in heaven. So let's just stop for a moment. How often do we trumpet our good works, our prayer life, our spirituality? Every time we do that, we just threw away the rewards. Just threw it away. Do you really want to have that kind of investment? You're throwing away eternal treasures investments? I don't think you want that. I don't want that. So let's take home today the importance of serving God with a pure heart to do things for his eyes and his eyes only and for his glory.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. This, the Proverbs teach us that most men, most men, will proclaim their own piety. Lord, you then ask an important question after that phrase, that most men will proclaim their own piety, but a faithful man who can find. Lord, it appears that it's very rare and very difficult to find someone who doesn't brag about their spiritual life. Lord, may we be men and women here that do not proclaim our own piety to others, that we don't know, let our right hand know what our left hand is doing, and vice versa. Lord, help us to do things in secret before you. Help us not be actors and schemers and manipulators. Lord, help us be genuine, godly people that follow your word. May we be the type of followers of Jesus Christ that brings glory to him and to your name. Thank you, Lord, for this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.